In 2018, the Wealth Standard Podcast broke down the year into three seasons, each focusing on a principle from the inspired works of philosopher John Locke, specifically his philosophy on life, liberty, and property. In 2019, we progressed from principle to the ideal environment for building wealth and achieving prosperity. The theme was laissez-faire capitalism. For season two, it continues. The theme is entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship and how you apply the principles and environment to the individual. The guests ranging from economists to entrepreneurs to political influencers, authors, and more will teach you how to take your life to the next level. Now, on to the next episode. Hi, everyone. This is Patrick Donahoe. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Wealth Standard Podcast. We are in the season on entrepreneurship where we're focusing our guests, the topics of discussion, the questions all around the idea of the entrepreneur. Now, previous themes of the podcast have been on uh, capitalism, on the notion of life, liberty, and property. It's been fun to really focus the episodes, the guests, the questions around just the central theme. And we're almost at the end of this season on entrepreneurship, but I hope you guys have been learning a lot. If you're here for the first time, welcome. And go back and definitely check out previous episodes. I know you're going to get really good course on the idea of the entrepreneur. But this episode is different. And it's different because is interviewing not necessarily a professional speaker or presenter, but someone that I have a lot of respect for. I met him about a year ago. He's actually my neighbor and become a friend. And he has been in the technology space for quite some time, but he works and is the foundational uh, part of the foundational engineering team, software engineering team for Carta. And Carta, they're one of those companies, multi-billion dollar company that has really owned the space of organizing the ownership of public and private companies and not necessarily the ownership, but the employee ownership. And there's other things that they're doing as well. They're very innovative and are owning, like I said, this space. And Jared has had this, uh, who's my guest today, he's had this front row seat of looking at the world from that perspective, which is very unique. And it's led to some high-level conversations with him and I over the last year. And I've learned a ton about how the business world is changing from how companies are getting capital, how they're being valued. Also, from the standpoint of what employees are expecting of companies in that space, which I believe it's shifting to you know, non-tech companies. But Jared in the interview argues that all companies are essentially becoming tech companies, especially if they want to survive in this day and age. So it's a fascinating interview. It's a perspective that most do not have. And we try to stay as high level as possible because there's some terminology in that you know lexicon, the technology lexicon that most don't understand. I believe that we got some really good nuggets out of Jared, but I may have him back on because there were some things that we talked about offline that I was so intrigued by and wanted to discuss and explore further, but due to the lack of time, uh, we weren't uh, weren't able to. But I want you, depending on your role, to look at this interview from that perspective, wherever you are in you know in your professional space. If you're an employee, if you're an owner, or if you're an entrepreneur, maybe a combination of the few things. First, as an employee. I find it interesting how employees are being compensated differently these days. And they're not necessarily looking for companies where 
they can you know, work for 30 years. They're looking for companies that align with values in a sense, but also the notion of work has changed. They're more working to live instead of you know, previous generations who were living to work. And I find this interesting because it has put some pressure on companies because if one company is offering what employees are demanding, then that company is going to get high-level employees, high engagement, uh, high retention. Whereas a company that doesn't necessarily keep up with those times is going to lose ta- uh, talent, have uh, turnover, and probably going to lose a lot of money. And I believe that this space is rapidly evolving as far as what employees are demanding as part of their overall compensation and overall experience in the workplace. From an investor standpoint, I think that's another role that is interesting to look at the businesses that are coming online these days. You have multi-billion dollar businesses that aren't profitable, which means that they are spending more money than they're making. And so we get into that conversation as well. And also from you know an entrepreneur space, that perspective, which is what are the various ways in which you can be capitalized? And not necessarily just money capital, but also how do you associate with those that have built big businesses, big companies, and done it with this new way in which companies are, are capitalized through venture capital, private equity, and navigate those waters, which can be pretty treacherous if, if you don't know what you're doing. So there's capital, not just in money, but also the experience that surrounds you know, a lot of incubators and other spaces in which these type of companies are coming online. But anyway, it's a fascinating topic to me. I hope you get a lot out of it. I feel that you know, really, this is a conversation that needs to happen more because I see in my own business how things are changing and observing the world around me, whether it's you know industries that have been around for hundreds of years to you know companies that have very good reputation, things are being disrupted very quickly, and it's going to be an interesting uh, couple of years. But you guys are going to learn a lot from Jared. Like I said, he's my neighbor. He moved into the neighborhood about a year ago. I've been there for about 15 years now. And we have a lot of things in common. He has, like I said, just a tremendous amount of knowledge associated with his craft and his field. And so hopefully you guys uh, learn from him today. If you guys, like I said, if you want to get links to some of the books that we talk about, as well as links to different websites and people, then head over to thewellstandard.com. And in the show notes will be all of those links. So without any more delay... Let's uh, get to my very fascinating interview with Jared Hobbs. Hey, everyone. All right. I have a really special guest today, and we're in studio. I have been talking a lot on this season about the way in which our society is evolving, how business ownership is evolving, how entrepreneurs all are evolving. And it, it seems so fast, it's hard, to, it's hard to keep up with. But I brought in Actually, my neighbor, uh, his name's uh, Jared Hobbs, and moved into the neighborhood. It's been over a year now, hasn't it? Yeah, um, moved in in June of last year. Yeah, and Jared moved from uh, Palo Alto, and it was cool because when I first met him, his wife is Latina, his dog was the same name as my dog, and he liked the same type of music. I, anyway, it was it was really cool. I was like, oh, it's like my kindred spirit moving in next door. But Jared uh, is a, a software developer, software engineer, and he is uh, was part of the founding engineering team with Carta. And it's been fascinating to have conversations with him. And I wanted to have him on today because he has some insight into what companies are doing these days that most people, including myself, aren't entirely aware of. And so we're going to get into today how the evolution of companies and employees has impacted the tech world and how it's I would say, evolving into the rest of the business world from an ownership standpoint. 
and how uh, companies are being capitalized these days, how are they getting investors, what options are available to you. But also, if you're the entrepreneur, the business owner, there are, are so many ways when you can capitalize your company other than the standard traditional ways. However, there are a lot of just, I would say, unknowns. And uh, so we're going to talk through those because Jared has been at the forefront of that for the last, uh, last, last several years. But as investors, that's another thing that I find difficult is, you know, these days you have a lot of companies that are multi-billion dollar companies that, you know, early on didn't make any money. They made money from a revenue standpoint, but weren't necessarily profitable, meaning they were spending more than they were making, but yet they grew and became these, you know, huge industry giants. So I want to talk through that as well, because for me as an investor, you want a company to be profitable. You want it to be earning cash flow. And looking at a company that's not doing that immediately sets in some concerns. So I want to talk through just how as an investor, you look at a company that is capitalized in a modern way and how to determine you know, whether there is some viability there uh, worth investing in or, or not. So Jared, let's get into it. I mean, I know we've had some pretty high level discussions. We talked just a, a little bit now in regards to you know what you have been been a part of uh, but maybe start with just what is your experience like in Palo Alto and how has it been to just see you know different companies on the Carta platform and how they've been able to transform just based on what has been what tools have been available to them that may not be available or even known about to other businesses yeah so the business world in silicon valley is is different. You know, it, it's a bubble. It's different than any other business type that I've seen. It's the only place where you can have a business raise millions and millions of dollars and not have any cash flow, not have any uh, money coming in, right? So no money coming in, just money that, yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's fascinating that people would put money toward that. Yeah. Um, it seems like a lot of those companies, they're valued more on their network effect potential to make money rather than what they're making now. So what you'll see is a company, a couple founders that have an idea, they start getting some traction and they take their idea to Sand Hill Road in Palo Alto where all the investment firms are and they pitch that idea and you know these investors see that, okay, maybe these people actually do have this strong network effect. They, they're looking for the next Facebook, the next Uber. And even if this business isn't actually making money and, and they're burning more money than they're taking in, you know, that network effect is what's valuable. So what's the, but what's the payoff for them? Like, how do they know that? Well, first off, like the pull potential thing, it's like everybody, you know, I, I think everybody has potential, right? But looking at those that actually achieve, like, are they, like, what do they look for as the variables to determine whether or not it's going to be successful? Venture capital is, it's funny. They're really looking for that one payoff, right? They're going to be throwing money at a lot of different companies with the hope that one of them pays off. Um, most startups fail. That's just a fact. Most of them won't make it past Series A um, in financing and they'll shut their doors. But if a venture capital firm finds like that needle in the haystack, that one company that will actually make it to like a unicorn or a decacorn status, then it was all worth it, right? It, it doesn't really matter that they lost money in all these other companies. Is there a formula for that? Or is it just throwing money at the wall and hoping one of it, one investment sticks? Um, I'm sure some firms are like that. Yeah. But for most of the firms, um, I've noticed they they look at multiples of on ARR. What's ARR? ARR is the annual recurring revenue of a company. So some of these com early stage companies, you know, they'll have ARR, it'll be really low, but they'll be valued based on a multiple of that. 
It's also investors will look at proven track records of the founders. Like if a founder had a, a previous successful startup, they're more likely to fund that person just because they've proven themselves. If a founder has not proven themselves um, and they don't have like a team that's worked on you know successful startups before, but they have good ARR numbers, that's a, a good signal for those VCs. So you can go the VC route, right? And go and pitch these bigger firms to get that type of capital to start. But what are what are some other ways that, you know, I would say crowdfunding is the one that, that comes to mind, but what are some other ways in which smaller businesses or entrepreneurs with ideas have gone to the marketplace as opposed to, you know, borrowing money from mom and dad, going to a bank and getting a loan, uh, but have received capital and then taken that and actually turned an idea into something tangible? Yeah, there's a lot of success stories with, with companies like Kickstarter and GoFundMe and um, Indiegogo. A lot of these are exchanged for a product. I haven't seen a lot of companies give equity through these crowdfunding platforms. I'm not even sure if they're allowed. Oh, actually, I've seen a couple on Carta that have done that, that have gone that route. Problem with that though is your cap table gets inundated with all these people, with all these very small small investments, investments. and uh, there's laws where you can't have more than a certain number of people on your cap table. So it gets kind of tricky if you try to really fund that way. Do you think that'll change? Is there pressure to change it? I think there is pressure to change it. Um, I know Carta is lobbying the Congress right now to get a lot of changes mm. happening, especially in the accredited investor space, mm. trying to, to slacken those rules a little bit mm. um, to make it easier for the average person to invest in privately held companies. Mm. But a lot of uh, early stage startups will go the bootstrapping route. You know, They'll try to build their company based on just on their own savings. The founders will be the main like seed investors. Other companies will go to angel investors, which are wealthy individuals that usually give money in the very, very early stage in mm. what we call the pre-seed stage. What are some of the angel, like more popular angel investing platforms that um, people would, would may not be aware of? AngelList is, is like the main one that I'm aware of. I'm sure there's other places too, just going into networking events or mm. pitch competitions. You meet these angel investors. So yeah, normally a startup will fund their platform or their development using you know their own money friends and family money and angel investors um if they start seeing like you know some traction that maybe they actually have a good idea here they'll go to a seed stage funding fundraise there's a lot of angel investors that participate in in seed stage there's also vc firms that participate in seed stage there's incubators also um like combinator techstars things like that idea lab yeah, idea lab these are great. Um, they usually will give you a, a small amount of money. I think YC is something like $120,000 in exchange for 7% equity. What's YC? Uh, y Combinator. They're one of the big incubators in Silicon Valley. Okay. Let's take a, a back step and describe these stages. Because at least myself, I don't know if I understand it 100%. Because usually when you have investment in uh, in a, a new company there's essentially one stage right <laughs> you, you know you, you put an investment alone you know you just you put a capital contribution and then you start spending it and hoping you can get bring in revenue right so that's that seems like the only stage so talk talk maybe about like these seed stages and then this different series stages and how that all works sure so just speaking from what i know in in the bay area how it usually goes is you want to raise money you decide to take on outside capital in exchange for equity. So you build a pitch deck and then you start shopping around. You start 
pitching to there's different pitch competitions where like you show your idea off and then you get in, people that are interested. They start throwing money at you. Uh, you sign a term sheet and then you start working. So usually what happens is there's a pre-seed stage and that's usually like friends and family, individual contributions, things like that. Mm. And that's just to, to test, to do maybe market research to see if you actually have an idea that could become profitable. After your idea has been proven and you think that you can actually build this thing, you need to actually raise more money. So that's your seed money. So the people that put seed money in get paid off and they're out? Or um, how does that work? So, Or do they stay in and now the company becomes bigger because there's more seed money? There's more money in it. Yeah. So every new round of financing that a company takes on, um, the existing investors will get diluted. So a lot of times the company will give those investors an opportunity to put more money in to basically get their share, their percentage back up to where they were. A lot of times these small investors don't want to do that. They just want to cash out. So usually when you're raising a new round of financing, you can have a, an opportunity to provide liquidity for the existing shareholders. So maybe if you're raising a series A now, your seed stage investors want to get some liquidity out you know, from their investment. They've probably been around for five years or so, less probably. But they want to see some return, right? Is so, that determined on the initial term sheet or is that determined when the next round of funding comes in? It's It'll usually always be written to the term sheet of like when they can get their money back out okay. and everything. But So when you're raising money, um, the shares that you give them are usually preferred shares also. So in, in cases of like a, an exit, an acquisition or an IPO or something, those preferred shareholders get their money out first uh, before any common shareholders do. So anyway, do founders usually take common or do they, take, do they also have uh, preferred? Some founders do preferred, but most founder stock is common, but it's, it's a higher level of common than normal common. Okay, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So basically debt gets paid out first, then preferred shares, then founders common and then common. So when you go to these different stages, how does the valuations change? Because obviously, if you're going to bring in new capital, hey, you've proven an idea, but then like, what does that mean? Right. And then how do you value the next stage? So the idea is proven. Is there another kind of like theory or formula to determine like, okay, how is it going to be valued and what determines, you know, the next stage after that? Yeah. So when talking about these tech companies, there's actually two valuations. There's the fair market value, which is the value of the common stock. And then there's the preferred price, which is what investors are willing to pay for it. Okay. They're both valued in different ways. The common stock is required. That valuation is required on Form 409A, the IRS tax code. And that's usually done by an external, like a third party. Like Carta is the biggest provider of 409As in the United States. Mm-hmm. And that usually, there's a, a Black-Scholes statistical model that goes into that valuation. Um, there's a lot of little knobs and levers that they can pull to, to tweak the valuation. There's like a discount for lack of marketability because a lot of times these companies aren't making any money. So it, it makes it a little harder. And then for comparable companies, they only really have public companies that they're able to compare to because private companies aren't releasing their financials. So it's a little, I don't know, hand wavy on how that math works just because it's not like an apples to apples comparison. Mm-hmm. But then for preferred stock, that the investors are the ones that actually um, value the company. And they do their own due diligence before they invest. They'll also look at comparable companies. They'll look at their own portfolio of investments and, and see any similarities there. And yeah, basically, they will 
give you a, a valuation. Like when you hear about a tech company being valued at a billion dollars, that's not their fair market value. That's their preferred price that the invest the latest investors have put on their company. Got it. Okay. Well, let's do, let me go to this then because there's a couple other things I want to I want to get to. So this past year, I mean, one of the biggest IPOs in history happened, right? Uh, Uber, and it was good for a lot of people, but it wasn't good for others, right? Because there's a lot of later stage investors in Uber that you know lost money on the IPO, and they could obviously keep you know money in, and hopefully it'll be you know more valuable in the future. But how does that happen? Right, because you have a lot of these big companies that have been funded, capitalized this way, and are now going public. WeWork is another one that's about to go public, and WeWork, you know, their financials—it's like they're bleeding money. So, like, they're now going public. Like, why would anybody, <laughs> if they're bleeding money, why would anybody in the public market, you know, invest in that? Right. So maybe go through the Uber thing first. Yeah, Uber was interesting. I think they went public at an eighty billion dollar valuation, something like that. They were private for a long time, so they had many, many rounds of private financing. I don't know exactly offhand like how many rounds they did, but I think it was like Series F, Series G, like it was up there. Wow! And every round, you know, it dilutes more and more. Seniority goes to the latest investors, so early investors they're way down at the bottom of the the chain, also. So the early investors lost more than the latter stage investors, probably. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen, I haven't actually looked at all any of the public records on it, but that's what I would imagine. But yeah, I mean, with that company, especially now that they're public, you know, people are seeing their financial, they're seeing how much money they're losing. And I think there's been analyses done where they said like there isn't really anything that they can do to become profitable other than raising the prices. But then if they raise their prices, no one's going to use it. Right. So I don't know. All right, so we go to WeWork. So, so WeWork right now they're still private, right? And they're bleeding money, okay. And if they don't raise any more money, they're going to go out of business, okay. So their options are ultimately to do another round of funding or to go public, and they're trying to go public, okay. Yeah. So why are they going public? And then, like, how do you characterize the mentality of somebody willing to actually buy shares in in WeWork, right? If they're bleeding money. Yeah. I mean, companies, when they go public, it's usually because they need to raise more money, right? They can't raise any more private money. Like the investors don't want that. They, they want out. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not really sure, like in cases like that, why, you know, the public would buy into it when these private investors aren't. <laughs> these private investors want out. I don't know. I, I guess it's economics that I don't understand. Um, but yeah, they're gonna go and they're gonna raise they're gonna raise Monday money and people are gonna invest in it because it's the the sexy thing to do. And I mean, a lot of times, like companies that aren't making money, even publicly, you know, their values keep going up. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's like a fear of missing out thing. People are want in on a company that they believe can, you know, hundred X in yeah. value. Like you, you look at earlier IPOs like Google, um, Amazon, Facebook. Facebook was pretty high valuation at the time. But compare those to like the recent IPOs and those things were like, it was nothing, you know, these IPOs just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Who knows, Mm -hmm. like if if we're going to hit a ceiling, if we're in some sort of bubble that's going to pop and, you know, everyone's going to lose money on all these investments. I don't know. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, well, let's go now to, I would say, the employee side of things, which I think is is pretty fascinating. And we're going to mention some books and some other people to follow so you guys can keep up to, you know, how is it? Because this is the current, you know, I would say business world that we live in. And so knowing about it, it's not like it's going to go away. It's so big and it's evolved so much where it's just going to continue to evolve. So we're going to approach it in a few ways, but we'll obviously talk about some books and some other people to follow to kind of keep up with these, not necessarily trends, but but the way in which uh, business is evolving. So now I want to talk about the employees. So the employees of you know Uber or WeWork, and I'm talking more about you know not necessarily like Uber drivers, right? But the the employees that are you know essentially the developers helping with the technology, the design, the R and D. The, so if WeWork is bleeding money, don't employees know that they're bleeding money, right? And then how does that preserve the I would say, you know, just the culture of the company, right? And what are these companies doing, you know, that's different than maybe, you know, uh, companies of the past? So when we talk about burn, it's a normal thing, especially in tech startups. If you're not burning money, you're not utilizing that capital that you raised. So investors don't like that. They want to see you spending that money, right? Um, If you're not spending it, like, why did you even raise it in the first place? So there's like a, a yearly or a monthly burn rate and a company will will have like a runway of, of time that they can burn this money before, you know, they're out of money. And they usually raise money, you know, before that runway ends. So like, I'm not sure about WeWork in particular, but like, I'm sure they also had, you know, they're expecting to burn a certain amount of money. Um, they know how much they're making, how much they're spending, and they're investors are probably expecting them to burn a certain amount every month. If they're burning more than that, you know, they could be in trouble. And if they're not burning, if they're not hitting that burn target, then they're in trouble too. They're also in trouble. Yeah. So uh, without knowing like their specific plans and like what their investors expect of them, there isn't really much we can do, but I'm sure like their employees probably know about those things too. If, if the company's transparent about their financials. So with employees, now let's get into how employees are compensated these days that's been different in the past. And that's some of what Carta is trying to make easier. But maybe speak to that because employee retention is important. Right. So in the past, you know, people have gotten a salary. They might have gotten other perks. They've, you know, they've gotten their benefits, their health insurance, 401k, maybe things like that. But nowadays, especially with platforms like Carta, which make it easy to grant options to your employees, it's kind of expected now. So like if I'm a recent graduate in a technical field and I'm looking for a job, if that company doesn't offer equity as part of my comp package, I'm not even going to look at that. You're not going to apply. No. It's just something that's expected now. And like if you're not offering equity, then, you know, I'm going to go somewhere else that is offering equity. Especially like living in Palo Alto, um, you meet a lot of different people and what you notice is the people that actually have money that, that can afford to live there that have a house, they're either business owners or they're like employees that won the, the stock um, lottery. Yeah. <laughs> so it's basically like if you want money, if you want to be wealthy, you need to be an owner. You need ownership. And without that ownership, you're just basically living paycheck to paycheck. You're not going to be become financially independent that way. Unless you can take part of that paycheck and invest it in something that's going to make you an owner. So is this, it started as more of a tech phenomenon, right? Yeah. Uh, Do you see it evolving into other sectors? Oh, definitely. 
Yeah, I think um, it was Fairchild Semiconductor in the 70s that was the first company to actually offer equity to their employees. And it stayed basically in the tech sector for a long time. But like we mentioned before, um, platforms like Carta make it so easy to to um, to grant employee equity that lots and lots of more companies are doing that. Basically, like we're now in a period of time where every company is a tech company. Every company relies on software. Technology, yeah. And if they require technology, they require software already. You're going to manage your company, your, your company's um, ownership on a platform like Carta. And why not just, you know, carve off 10%, 20% of your company to give to the employees? It makes them happy. It makes them work harder because now they have an, a vested stake in the mm-hmm. company. There's all sorts of different um, rules that you can put into the, the contract to make sure that they stay, right? Most option grants come with a one-year cliff. So um, you don't get any grants until you've worked there for a year. And then after that one-year cliff, um, it vests on a monthly basis. So it kind of incentivizes employees to stay there until their options vest, at least as minimum. And then other companies will offer refresh grants. Like as soon as one of their grants is almost done vesting, they might give them another grant that vests in another four years to keep them around, right? How many companies are on Carta? Do you know more or less? Uh, there's a lot. You know, like hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands? There's thousands of customers, something around 8,000 companies. Wow. There's close to 800,000 employees um, on They're Carta. On so do you see, based on what you have experienced from the time you started, are, do you agree with that theory that this is going to be the new way in which employees are paid or compensated? Oh, definitely. Equity is a huge, it's probably more important than, than your W-2 salary. Your W-2 salary can go up incrementally. It's not going to make a big difference. But that equity, if you're working at a company that gives you decent equity and you're helping to make that value of your company go up, as soon as there's a, a liquidation event, an IPO or an acquisition or something, those options are going to be worth way more than your W-2 salary. Now, maybe approach it from the business owner standpoint. Why would this make sense for a business owner? And we'll get the first one out of the way, which is this is what employees are expecting, right? It's similar to the standard expectation of employees today is that they get healthcare, right? Yeah. Uh, that wasn't the case necessarily you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, but now it's an expectation. So going into, you know, I would say this way of receiving compensation, that's going to become an expectation. So now go into why would it make sense for a business owner or how does it make sense for a business owner to do this? Yeah. I mean, one thing, right, it's it's basically to stay competitive, you're going to have to give stock options uh, to your employees. There's tax benefits also for the the business owner. With option grants, at least like you're not actually giving away any stock until it's the option to buy stock, right? So you are giving um, your employees the option to buy stock at a discounted price, but you know, a lot of employees won't actually exercise until a liquidation event where they'll do like a buy to cover option where they'll sell everything and then they'll use that money to pay for the The actual uh, option, exercise the option. Right. And the tax that's necessary. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. But like our CEO at Carta, he's told us many times that he believes that there's like four stages of employment basically where we started out in slavery and moved to indentured servitude. And right now we're in payroll, you know. You're talking about society in general. Society in general. The employment world. Yeah, so, but the future will be ownership where you're not paid just by a a monthly paycheck. You're also given equity and 
you become part owner of the company that you work for. That's fascinating. So how do you determine like by you know, employee to employee, do they all get the same or is it different just based on levels of experience, expertise, uh, how long they've been there? Like how does that, how does that, or is it just, you know, equally split across the board? It's totally up to the company. So it's very flexible in that, especially like an early stage company, they might want to give more equity to those founding team members because it's a lot riskier for them, right? Yeah. They're quitting maybe a job in corporate America to work untested, unproven startup. Yeah, a probability. But then once a company is in a later stage, Series B, Series C, you know, okay, maybe the company's making money. The Those company, are liquidity events that you were talking about. Yeah. So once that happens, you know, a later stage employee, you know, employee number 200, employee number 300, they'll probably get a lot less equity. So a lot of times it's proportional to the risk involved. Got it. Interesting. Is there a formula for that? Does uh, Carta help with that? I don't think Carta has that formula. Yeah. I know that we have an internal formula we use for our new hires. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, every company will be different. I think before a general rule of thumb was like do a 20% option pool for your employees. The first 10% goes to your first 10 employees. So 1% each. And then the rest of it, the other 10% is, is allocated for all the rest of your employees. Hmm. And then of course, you know, you can refresh that off option pool with later rounds of financing and things like that. For me, a lot of this is what's intrigued me for a while. I mean, especially since we've started uh, talking, looking at this being a topic that, that I am assuming most people don't really study or are aware of, what are some of the recommendations you have for them to learn more? So to learn more about options, there's books, you know, there's blogs. There's a book that required reading for Carta employees called Consider Your Options, which talks um, about ISOs and ENSOs and RSUs and all these different um, equity instruments. Our CEO at Carta, Henry Ward, he's got a blog. He's got some really great blog posts out there. Uh, you can find them on Medium. And also Carta's blog itself. There's a lot of great posts on equity, on foreign a valuations, on just all sorts of startup-related issues. So there's some required reading at Carta, which I found uh, really interesting. So Zero to One, you know, Peter Thiel's book, The Lean Startup. But one that was interesting to me, maybe we can end with this, is how to win friends and influence people, which is an older book. And you, yeah. you wouldn't think that it's like, wow, Dale Carnegie, like, oh, so why is that recommended? Why do you think that is recommended reading? Yeah. So that was, I think, one of the first books that was recommended to like all new employees to read. And it's basically, it helps an employee gain leverage, helps you to the relationship, business relationships, personal relationships, and to build this leverage that you need to actually, you know, gain advantage, I guess, over your, over competitors, over like even like your boss, your manager, right? Like you need some sort of leverage to be able to negotiate for a better you know, salary benefits or position yeah. or position in the business to business world. You need to, you need to build leverage in order to, you know, win a contract, you know, against another or get funding. Yeah. Or to get funding. Do you know that the, do you know the whole Warren Buffett story behind Dale Carnegie? It's the only certificate he has in his office that he has hung on his wall is his graduation from the Dale Carnegie Institute. Oh, nice. <laughs> Did you know that? I didn't. <laughs> it says something. But no, I, I, I find that really interesting. I mean, it's, it is we're, all businesses relationships, ultimately. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some definite you know, core principles and core values around relationship in that book. Jared, this has been awesome. I mean, I know you kind of dove into a variety of topics and bounced around. What do you want to use as maybe final charge to listeners in regards to this specific topic? So, I mean, to the, the business owners, to the entrepreneurs, you know, there's 
so much money out there. There's so many ways to get money. If you think that raising outside funds is the way to go for it, if you think that you can bootstrap it and not have to give away you know, part of your company to become successful, that's also a great way. I think there's real value in like an accelerator, an incubator. If you can get into something like Y Combinator, I totally think that it's worth it to give away your 7% of your company for that network that you'll get by getting in there. For the employees, you know, keep pressuring your companies to give equity if they don't already. It's something that will help you out. I mean, a lot of startups, most startups will fail. So, you know, your options could end up worthless. But in the chance that, you know, your company succeeds, it can make you a lot of money. So one of the things, and maybe I'll end with this, is a piece of the book I wrote as well as a lot of what I believe is employees essentially, you know, have all the information at their at their disposal to be uh, successful, right? So the gap between where you are and where you want to be isn't necessarily a lack of information, right? It's, you know, where to get that information. And uh, it's also to understand more about yourself and how you equate to value in the marketplace. And so a lot of the charge I give people sometimes is go out and look at, you know, the marketplace, right? Whether it's payscale.com or salary.com and and see what the market's offering. Look at where your position is currently, but more importantly is where you want to go, see what is required from you know, either an experience standpoint, a skills standpoint, a certification standpoint. That information is more valuable than ever, which will, I would say, en- enable you to make more money at a much quicker pace than the standard you know, three to 4% cost of living increases most people are expecting. Oh yeah, definitely know what you're worth. That's that's a huge thing. And then that creates the baseline to becoming worth more. <laughs> cool. Or Joe, this has been uh this has been awesome. Thanks uh for taking the time on a Saturday. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Uh all right, everyone. Thank you again. We'll put all of the books that we've referenced as well as uh websites on the show notes. And so make sure you visit thewellstandard.com to get those. All right, that's it. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.